welcome, Heather. Thanks for joining us. Delightful to be here. I'm really uh, honored to be asked to be part of this podcast. It's uh, shed some light on another woman's experience. It's great. And that's what this whole podcast is about. I mean, cancer is hard and it's probably the one scariest word that you can hear in your life. And this podcast is really about, yeah, it's, it's heart wrenching, but hope and the other side of it, you know, once you get to the other side, how life can be. So great. So um, why don't you start now? I know you had breast cancer. It was a long time ago, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I was diagnosed in March um, 2000, Y2K. And for those of us who have been around, that was my Y2K gift. My computer didn't crash, but uh, my life did change dramatically that year. Wow. How did you discover it? Well, actually, it was my husband that found it. Uh, he was just, I don't know, he was hugging me or something. And he noticed on the left side, there was something kind of, he said, well, that's weird. And, oh, yeah, he said, you better get that looked at. I was really surprised. I'd had an annual physical with my physician about two months prior, and that had included a breast, you know, examination and all the usual things, and nothing was noticed. You know, so much of this discussion, it is, you know, people always say, how do you find it? You, say, you know, my husband found it sounds kind of through like a routine. It was just sort of a, it was a noticeable, elongated mass. So that would have been, um, I'm going to say it was a Wednesday, and it was in March. And I called my doctor and she saw me, I'll say it was Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday, I saw my doctor. She said, let's get you in. I had a mammogram. It all happened in a matter of days. I must say the actual sequence, but basically from the time that that lump was felt, within a few days, I know it was a Friday. My doctor called me in. It was a bleak and cold day up in, in Waterloo. And she looked there with tears in her eyes and she said, Heather, I'm so sorry this, this looks like you've got cancer. And I'm so sorry, I didn't know, I don't know how. She was crying, I was crying. She said, I've been calling around to get you in for a biopsy, but we're coming into March break. And she said all the, and at that point in time in Kitchener, Waterloo, there wasn't the regional cancer center. We had surgeons, but most of the cancer treatment was Toronto, London, or Hamilton at that point. There was nothing here. So she wanted to get me in to get a biopsy. She said, there's nobody, we're backed up. The hospital, Grand River Hospital at that point was anybody, uh, it was pretty chaotic at that point. And she said, March break, all the, the surgeries are all are basically, there's nothing being scheduled until well into April. She says, I'll do anything I can. She says, I don't know what to say. I don't want you to wait. And I said, well, is there something I can do? She said, well, if you can find anywhere, you know, I'll refer you anywhere you can do. I said, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. This is where I didn't realize what I was about to do was kind of unusual <laughs> um, I remember just having this cold, it was just like that, a cold hand on me, not from her, but just that sickening feeling. It was like I'd been hit with a towel. Uh, I went to my car, I think it was like about one in the afternoon, and it was sleeting and I closed the car and I was just shaking. I hadn't called Ken yet and I just gripped the wheel and just said, God, show me what I have to do to heal myself. What am I going to do? You know, I was, I was in shock in that free, I just freezing cold. And, and I thought I'd call my uncle, who's uh, a wise man. And uh, I, I called my uncle, not my mom, not my dad, not my husband, not anybody else. I called my uncle. 
And I told him he'd had the cancer experience himself and he's our family wise man. He's a retired professor now. And he said, well, Heather, this is very serious, but it's not hopeless, which was somewhat reassuring. I can't remember what else he said, but I just remember he said, this is very serious, but not hopeless. Okay. At that point, I, I guess I got myself home. I thought, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to start calling some friends. I knew some people who were nurses or healthcare. So Ken and I both made some calls and we got the names of surgeons in the area. I don't even know how I got this list. So by Saturday afternoon, I think I had 11 names of surgeons. I'd not had any intervention, like really outside of some complicated issues with the birth of my son. Um, I wasn't part of the healthcare system. So I had this list of names and at Monday morning, I don't know how I got through the weekend. Monday morning at nine o'clock, I started to fold people and left messages. And, and so I got this one, Dr. Lavina Lickley at Women's College Hospital, got through, I guess, to her secretary. She called me back and she said, okay, well, and, and I explained to them I was in Kitchener. There was no way I could get you know, in. Would they would be able to possibly see me just to look at this, what appears to be breast cancer? And my family doctor will send all the paraphernalia and referrals over. So I remember this stuck. I know I had a, a call from another place that was willing to take me in a couple of weeks. And Dr. Lickley's office said, okay, she could see me. This is Monday. She says, you can come in four o'clock on Thursday. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing. Okay, hung up. Two hours later, I got a call. She said, we've had a cancellation. Could you come in tomorrow at 8.30 a.m.? I know it's like short notice. I understand if you can't come in. I said, yeah, I'll come in. <laughs> like we, so apparently I was surprised. I, usually, I would have thought that would be like I was working full time, but this was like kind of top of mind here. Um, I couldn't imagine saying well, that wasn't a convenient time. So by golly, I don't know what time we got up, but we went in. And Dr. Lickley was about, I guess, four foot ten, this little feisty lady. Turned out she was the head surgeon and an expert in breast cancer, uh, was a double mastectomy herself as a breast cancer survivor, did all sorts of research. And she was just this really feisty little lady, took me in at 8.30. Uh, I hadn't done the biopsy yet. She looked, she says, oh yeah, it looks like breast cancer because it had the tentacles and whatever. Then she said, yeah, that's it. She said, well, you know, she said, we're so backed up here. She said, you know, things were chaotic in, the, in, in healthcare in Ontario. She said, it's probably going to be four to six weeks before I can get you, but we'll do what we can. So I felt really confident in her and I thought, okay, well, I've got a surgeon now. We'll get this all going. Her assistant walks by and she said, Lavina, we just had a cancellation. And I got in and had the biopsy. Well, I had the lump, like I had everything done within two weeks. What wow. are the chances of that? A biopsy and a lumpectomy? Yeah, they did the biopsy in less than two weeks. I okay. went to someone else. I can't remember the quite. I was back and forth to Toronto. They kept saying, you're, you're, wow, you're really keen. <laughs> I'm 44 years old. I have a four-year-old son. I want to live and I'm going to do everything I can. Like I was terrified but I'm an action-oriented person. So I was so fortunate that there were opportunities for me to take action because I know a lot of other women spend a lot of time waiting and having things screwed up and lost. And, you know, so I don't know how, why that happened to me. All I know is doors and windows were flying open for me and I was jumping through hoops and anything I could do. And it was amazing. Um, 
Remember that having the biopsy, nice woman did that. It was, again, I had to go into a woman's college. That was one of the most painful things I've ever had. I don't know why it was a punch biopsy. Yeah. Right into that. And I don't know if it was just the, she was really sweet about it. I don't know if he used freezing. I hadn't heard anybody else. I, I just found that of all my experiences, you know, I've had a few since, that was incredibly painful. But it's very short-lived. It's only a moment or two while they're taking the sample out, but it must have got me. And I remember my mom came down with me. I can't imagine my mom, you know, 20 years later, the state that she's in now. But at that point, she was. And then we went to the, um, it was in March, Canada Blooms. Everything I was, I was reading, reading, reading uh, about how to keep a positive attitude. And again, some of this will be old hat, but at this time, it was still kind of new, you know, about laughter and keeping a positive frame of mind to help with the healing process. I wasn't using magical thinking that if I just thought, you know, everything would be positive because I really truly thought I was going to die. It was such a large tumor, it turned out. It was, did appear to be stage two. I'm, I'm jumping all over the place and trying to look at beautiful things still kind of shook up from the, the biopsy. The reason they were doing that was, I guess, even though like they knew I had cancer, they, um, Dr. Lickley wanted to be able to, I guess, know what she was getting in for. I guess they can kind of be prepared when they're going in to know what they're dealing with if there's certain, you know, types of cells that they'd be looking for. So I had the surgery and it, it, it seemed to go well. I had, they wanted to put me in a test group. I was so, it's a teaching hospital, absolutely used. So they did something, they injected me with some dye in my lymph nodes. They were trying to look for sentinel nodes to see if there was something i don't know if that's a familiar term so the sense was given that this lump seemed to have blossomed out of nowhere that this was a pretty aggressive tumor and you know so they were going to be doing uh you know lymph nodes and they were trying to she was going to do some markers and i was happy to uh, put myself on the table of medical science if it would help with research on that so that wasn't I guess before the surgery, they were doing kind of all the ultrasounds and that to see if I had distant metastases. They did, you know, the bone scan, liver scan. That was kind of scary. I remember with the um, the fellow that was doing the, the liver, I guess it was an ultrasound. He spent forever and he kept going, <sighs> looking very concerned and, you know, puzzled. So this is, oh, it spread to my liver. And this is before I've even had the surgery. Uh, and I do, and, and even since that, I do have a, a funny duct or something in it. So that was puzzling him. But <laughs> if anybody's in healthcare, remember that those facial huffs when you're a patient, <laughs> okay, they freak you out. Because I'm really big on body language and I'm trying to look at the person's, you know, do they have an expression? Do they look happy? Do they look relieved? Do they look bored? Let's please look bored. <laughs> this guy was finding something. And it, it's, uh, you know, so it was kind of worrisome. So just before I went into the surgery, I hadn't heard what the results of this darn liver scan was. And so the, the bone scan came back clear. Everything looked good. And I was asking Dr. Lindley, uh, Lickley at that point, I said, did you get the liver uh, results back? He said, oh, yeah. He looked, she said, oh, it's all fine. You know, I said, oh. So that was good right before I went in. And she was, again, very matter of fact. And I wanted to have, I asked if I could play lovely like Enya like music in the this during the surgery and she looked at me she says if you want to wear headphones you can I don't want to listen to that 
because it's so funny. So I'm getting all, you know, my healing stuff. She was a very, so practical. And I look back now and what an amazing person. At the time I thought, oh, wouldn't she like to listen to this? No, she's doing surgery. She'll listen to what she, she's doing other stuff. She doesn't listen, need to listen to whatever I find to be healing. She's, they're going to be, and in her opinion, I wouldn't have heard it anyways, because uh, I was going to be unconscious, but I, you know, I, all this holistic stuff that I was listening to. So then the next hardest part came. So, I, you know, I had the surgery, I had a drain. There was, it was, it's a big deal. I didn't have the results. The, the, the big concern I had is how far had it spread. Given that I was anticipating living or dying, I became, and I'm a bit obsessive anyways, as you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> at that point is, okay, how many lymph nodes will be involved? Okay, because that was great. If, like counting cars or whatever, you know, kind of weird little traits I had. I seem to think that the number of lymph nodes would be somehow determining my prognosis. So she said it'd be about two weeks before they had the results of the, the big biopsy from, you know, everything related to the lymph nodes and, and my, uh, uh, the actual breast lump itself. So I lumped back to me, they took out 18 lymph nodes and the sentinel thing. So it was a big deal. So my arm was pretty, that was probably the bigger piece of, you know, the, the breast lump is, the, the surgical scar is, uncomfortable but the arm and it was my left arm luckily not my dominant arm but you know you've got drains and there's, there's a lot of rigmarole related to that I remember becoming really those I think there was a really long 14 days uh, I was back at my home in Kitchener uh, I had some uh, assistance with my son James his former babysitter that took care of him was for again another miracle she just happened to be able to, to help out for a bit uh, this would be, I guess, early April by this time. So I remember praying and just trying to figure out what I was to do with the rest of my life if I lived. I, I guess it's like when you're having a, a, a loss, you know, bargaining and denial and it'll be fine. No, it's not going to be fine. And, and then I had to wait these 14 days for the darn results that I felt the information was going to tell me whether I would live or die. That was just really to determine what type of treatment I felt that that would be it. So I was a little tense, to say the least, you know, trying to do all my relaxation. I can't remember the day of the week it was. All I know, it was $35 to park. <laughs> <laughs> so we got there. I think my appointment was for 11. We were there a bit early. I think there was a big clock in the waiting room. And it was 11. No, it wasn't called in 10 after, you know, I'm starting to just, the knot in my stomach is growing. I think I was starting to breathe quite shallow. <laughs> and then um, Dr. Lickley, the lovely assistant, this little angel figure comes through, she says, oh, so Dr. Lickley's been delayed. She won't be able to see you probably till about 1 or 1.30. Why don't you go for a walk? A walk? I can't even breathe. I'm like, <laughs> I just, I must have looked stricken. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And Ken took me, Ken kind of guided me. We're going to go down. I, I thought, I, I don't think I can wait two more hours. I will actually melt her. I didn't know what I was, I was in such a panic mode. This dear lady, as I got to the elevator, I think she saw me. I don't know what I look like, but it must be pretty sad or tragic or scary or something. Everything was negative. She whispered, everything was negative. So she gave me my results then. And I remember falling down on the floor and crying. Lymph nodes weren't involved. I had this huge tumor. And I just said, thank you for telling me. I took this huge breath. 
and it was like everything I felt at that point, it was okay. That woman was so kind. I don't know where she is now, but that was such a tender mercy that she gave me of taking me out of my misery. I, I could hardly breathe. By the time, I don't know what time, I would have waited till four o'clock, <laughs> given that I knew <laughs> I didn't have any lymph involvement at that point. So it looked like I was going to have, in fact, Dr. Licklater, matter of fact, said, well, you've got garden variety breast cancer. I wasn't a heritage type or any kind of exotic breast cancer. It was just <laughs> whatever. It was estrogen driven. It was, it had gone out of, it was lobal. It wasn't in C2 or whatever. It had spread it within the breast, but it hadn't gone into the lymph node. Once I healed enough, I would be going on chemo and then having radiation. Because things were a schmozzle at that point, she said, would you consider going to Buffalo? Because we've got an arrangement with Buffalo and they were sending people there at no cost to them just to get the backlog going. There was just, it was a mess trying to get radiation. They said, would you consider going? And I, she, she said, I know you have a young child. I said, absolutely, I'll go. But I'm not going to hold up radiation because I don't want to go to Buffalo. You know, it was, uh, she, there's a nice art gallery across the way from whatever this cancer center was. <laughs> she knew I liked art. I would have gone even if it was in the mine, you know, it didn't matter. I would have gone. I went through my cycles of chemo and on the chemo itself, I had no pain with it. Remember the first cycle, I just got that, uh, people have described a metallic taste to my mouth, had that. And I really craved salt. That's what I wanted. I wanted like pastrami and salty things, not sweet. And I remember thinking as I was having the chemo and the nurse was there and Ken was there and I said, oh, I just have a craving for pastrami sandwich, which isn't something would even be on my radar. And the nurse said, Ken, go get her a pastrami sandwich. And she <laughs> found one and he got me one. So waiting for my hair to fall out. Interesting. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's not really, you know, day 19, no hair's falling out. And I remember going to a place called Hope Spring. I hooked up with it's a cancer support center in, in Kitchener. I believe it's still going really helpful in Toronto. It's called Wellspring. But I remember going like this, putting my hand through my hair. Big chunk of hair came out. I was like, well, here we go. And uh, yeah, my hair came out. I think I went to someone. I, I did get a, some wigs. And my hair is the bane of my life. It's never been right. So losing my hair, I thought, was a chance for a new beginning with hair. And wigs were going to be fun because I always wanted to look like Anna Green Gables. And, and I thought I would get like, you know, red curly hair. I don't look good with red curly hair. Like I look like someone from Barnum and Bailey Circus with a red curly wig. <laughs> Another strange thing was just losing all, not people always talk about losing the hair in your head, but really every hair on your body comes off. So some of it's nice, summertime, never had such nice legs, you know, everything comes out, you know, you never have to shave your legs. Then one day I was brushing my teeth and all my eyelashes fell out. It was like bling, 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 bling. And that's an odd look to have being lashless. I signed up for something, what was it, look good, feel better? There was yep. a program, don't know. They still do it. Yeah, and I, I love makeup. And so that was a, a fun day. I did that. I don't know if I'd look better, but it was fun you know getting all the little samples and did you lose your eyebrows oh yeah 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 and then uh, lots of fun things related to you know how to cover up the bald head and I didn't want to frighten my son the best solution in the summer for me was I, I uh, treated myself to what was called a little tonsor and because I've got this round head and it was basically a fringe of hair it was bald on top almost like you're you know a, a Benedictine monk with you know the the bald on top and then you put a hat on top of that and so you had the advantage of hair without all the bulk. 
Now, if your hat came off, you really looked ridiculous, but it was actually pretty good for the summer, this little concert with some hair and a hat. So I guess this was the other thing is I had this notion that going through chemo, I would lose weight. And I heard that other women this morbid sense, of, okay, you've got this life-threatening illness, but you might lose weight. Well, I didn't. <laughs> it, it sounds just ridiculous to think, okay, fortunately, by 2000, they had, um, had these wonderful anti-nausea medications that I was able to take. I was lucky I worked for a company with a great uh, benefits package. So that drug, I think they're, they were like $100 a tablet or something. So wow. uh, there were people I, I, that I encountered in my treatment they couldn't afford to take them, that you wouldn't be able to take an anti-nausea pill. So again, these things that I took for granted, it was like, wow, am I ever lucky? So that's, I guess, where you lose weight if you're nauseous and throwing up. I never felt nauseous. I just craved pastrami sandwiches. So, <laughs> so uh, July wound up my rounds of chemo. They were waiting to see whether I'd have to go to Buffalo for the radiation. They were able to find a spot at Sunnybrook and uh, Princess Margaret combined. They said, would you be willing to live in the residence, the Princess Margaret residence? And I thought, fantastic. So I'd go Monday to Friday and come home on the weekend. So they usually did, you know, six weeks, five treatments a week. Then much to our surprise, my dad died suddenly right in between the two. He was 68. He had just recently retired and had some health issues, but he wasn't like expected. He had uh, a pulmonary embolism and died suddenly. Uh, it was a real, real shock. I remember going through the, you know, the funeral and, and what have you. So when I got to Princess Margaret Lodge, I think it was about a week after my dad had, or after his funeral and what have you. Normally when you go to the lodge, I'm not sure if it's still there. It was on Wellesley Street and normally you would share a room. And I remember thinking, I don't want to share a room with anybody. And I think I was, was sharing a room with a lovely lady, but she was dying. And I thought, oh, and, and because of the, my nature, I'm a, you know, a caregiver and fixer. And I thought, I don't know if I can. So I remember going to the front and just explaining, I said, if there does happen to be an opportunity to have my own room. And they said, when they knew that my dad had died and what happened, they said, absolutely. They got me my own room. And those six weeks were the most healing weeks, even dealing with stuff that wasn't related to cancer. There was actually some fun parts. One kind of miraculous thing that was, was really cool, there was a very sweet woman that I guess was at my table and I got, she was sweet. She lived in rural Ontario. And I guess when she arrived, she didn't have much. She had a couple of like ragged little track suits from, you know, the, what people wore the velour track suits 20 years ago. And we were talking about church or different things. She's, oh, I'd love to go to church, but I don't have anything to wear. And, and she was much older than me as well. I imagine her much older, but she was in her 70s, I think. Really sweetheart. So I, I remember feeling, hmm, what could I do? And I said, would you ever wear like pre-owned clothes? You know, she's, oh, sure. I wanted to get her something. And she, she really, I know how much that kind of look good, feel better can be. It was just like, get this woman some clothes. So I would go home just as a, a sidebar. Um, it was really nice. The Cancer Society at that point, when people were going out of town, provided volunteers that would drive you to and from Toronto. So I'm sitting there and there's this group of volunteers that were selling Nevada tickets, which are like a little raffle to support oh, yeah. the hospital. So of course I buy 
10 tickets and I win the $100. And I know that that's intended for this woman's clothes. Because that was, it was just like, God, show me just like how to heal myself. It was like, how am I going to get clothes for this woman? Because I don't have the money for it. So I had $100 cold hard cash. It was like, wow, wow. These kind of mystical moments. I go the next uh, day, feel well enough. I go to Value Village and clothes just basically falling into the shopping cart. I did the lady's colors and her sizes. I got an idea of this. I got her winter coat and all sorts. You can get quite a lot of clothes back then for a hundred dollars so i hauled them back and just said oh i have some bags i said oh help yourself um you know i've got a few things i didn't tell her how i got it or that it was through ill-gotten gains of gambling <laughs> and she came to me and she says everything fits and she was just so thrilled so that was really nice you know a god moment that got her some warm nice casual clothes that she had a whole matching outfit so that was sort of the once i finished up my uh chemo it was the fall. I knew that the pressure would be on me because I worked for an insurance company and disability. And I was back at work full time within 10 months. I felt it was a little ambitious. I went back slowly, but the, there was a fair bit of pressure to chop chop. They did provide me with some counseling, which was really good work with a wonderful therapist. I had a fatigue level. Really, my heart wasn't in my work. Like I just gone through this incredible experience. And it wasn't that I couldn't work. It was kind of like I didn't really, I, I lacked enthusiasm. And I'm not an enthusiastic person. Anyways, I'm also very dutiful. So I did go back and it was hard. It was hard. But I, I got through. Um, but work was hard to get back to. I felt I needed another month. Like they, they were really saying, okay, after radiation, I think they had the, you know, the disability guidelines, medical guidelines were about, I think, six weeks to get back to work, which, I was just kind of getting my head screwed on again. And I definitely had memory problems. Without a doubt, I had chemo brain and I had a job that required really acute memory and doing things. And I was just like, I felt like I was just in slow motion. And I remember, I guess a manager at the time took me out for lunch. And I remember, and I look back on this now and I, I certainly either misread it or she deliberately misled me. I thought she was taking me out to lunch because she cared. She was actually taking me out to lunch prior to me coming back to see what state I was in. Um, to see, yeah, and I look back on that now. Just tried to figure out, and she wanted to know what I wanted to do and what I felt I could do. And I was, I shared too much with her about sort of how my life had changed. And she definitely saw that I was not ambitious at that point. And some opportunities they put me. They in bypassed a, you on them. I think so, but it was probably for the best. So then I was on uh, tamoxifen for five years that had its, uh, you know, took its toll as well. I noticed I aged a lot after that, but then, you know, I was, I went into menopause with the chemo, you know, a lot of changes related to that. The women in my family tended to not go into menopause until well into their fifties. So that was considerably, you know, early on the three month check, the six month check, all those things of going back to see the oncologist uh, when they would do all the exam. It was, it was, pretty scary having the ultrasounds. I was going to have to travel back through rush hour. I remember being hungry, tired, and the oncologist, she was lovely. They always had different ones that were running the post, whatever, uh, the breast cancer clinic. And I was just, it was probably about a year or so after, and she was looking at my results because I'd already had them. She's I don't like the looks of this. She said, I want you to go and have some more tests. Oh my God. 
So of course, I'm dying again. I don't know how I drove home safely. I was dizzy. Like I was, I'm dying, I'm okay. I'm dying, I'm okay. As it turned out, it was a scar tissue that was seen on the mammogram. Her kind of candid, I don't like the looks of that. Oh, 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 oh. With And again, I would maybe handle that differently now. I just kind of sucked it up, but then, you know, unraveled on the way home. 20 years later, I can now have a mammogram and uh, not be really worried anymore. I did end up having um, reconstructive surgery two years ago, after yep. all those years. So 18 years I had gone. So I had basically breasts that were the long and the short of it. So <laughs> I had one, the breast that didn't have breast cancer was very, as I've aged and postmenopausal was very large. I'm overweight anyway. So I had this kind of large pendulous breast and then a perky breast you know, really, what does it matter? But I found getting clothes were hard. It was always hard getting a top. I did use a prosthetic that I would use if I was wearing tighter clothes, but they're hot and a pain. And so I went to a couple of plastic surgeons to check and it was covered by OHIP. There's some extra costs that you do provide, but I really wanted to get the larger breast reduced. So I'd at least be balanced looking. So when I, a couple of years ago, when I did go ahead with this one surgeon, he actually said he would fix the breast that had had cancer and he actually removed the scar. So the scars I have are under my arms now from whatever he did. So that was really neat. So I have breasts that don't have any scars on them and they're both the same size. So it's never too late. And I was in my sixties when I had that done and the recovery is not, it, it's certainly not like I understand like having a breast augmentation is easier recovery than having a breast reduction. So I was off work for six weeks, I think, with the breast uh, reconstruction. But again, that was all covered because it was related to breast cancer even 18 years later. Well, the other fun thing is that uh, I'm quite conservative, but I do have five tattoos because as part of having the radiation. <laughs> so anytime they have these things, you know, do you have a tattoo? Oh, yes, I have five, but I have five polka dots. And Years later, I went to, I guess, a naturopathic clinic, and it was a, there was a, a teaching facility, and I remember this girl was going over my back, and I, she was just doing a whole scan, and I forgot, I don't see my back, and she was running back to textbooks, trying to figure out what a blue mole was, <laughs> and it was my tattoos for where they put the breast, the form to, to, to shield my yep. heart. Yeah. Radiation because of that, but that, that was funny. So I have five tattoos. Is there anything else you wanted to know? Or? No, I think that's really it. And um, it was an interesting story. I think you know, and, and I think for me it's inspiring because it was twenty years ago. Yeah. And and that you haven't had a reoccurrence. And you know, I have chatted with some women who have had cancer for my Dragon Boat team uh, a couple of times, one woman four times. So yeah. it, it, it's, you're never sure. You're never yeah. sure. They did have a number of gynecological problems, I should say. And they did say with tamoxifen, that was sort of the drug of choice at that point that you took. And they said I might have some problems. And I did. Uh, so I would say about 10 years after I was on it, I ended up having a radical hysterectomy about five years ago. And it looked like some of the cells in the uterus were sort of atypical. I wish I'd had the hysterectomy before because mm. it ruined a few holidays with as soon as you see bleeding, it's just like, ah, yeah. I'm dying again. Yeah. So those were kind of the scares. 
Uh, I'll never know for sure if that had anything to do with the tamoxifen, if it's unrelated, but I have to think, I mean, um, our bodies go through a lot of pummeling as, you know, and the good news is, hey, I'm cancer free, Yeah. but it, it's not without doing a, a number on our hormones, but I'm glad that I certainly had no problems uh, since. Are there any words of wisdom or? You know, be courageous, be real, all these things you want to gag. 20 years ago, breast cancer was just starting to be commercialized with a pink ribbon. And I found a lot of this stuff just like, oh, are you going to be in the radio you know, wanting, you know, becoming the poster child for breast cancer? And I found it just, I didn't understand what it was, but it was the commercialization you know, we have this romantic, you know, women and breast cancer, you know, it became kind of, kind of cool, not for me, but there was just kind of, I found that annoying. Um, anyway, so I, I tended to not want to be part of, of that at that point in time. Um, more power to people that were raising money and that, I'm not downplaying that at all. So much good and, and research was done. I think our bodies are telling us something. For me, it was, it, it kind of, I was changed forever from that experience. I continue to change, but it was definitely a, a, one of the biggest events in my life. So I've had a lot of big things happen, but that was pretty life-changing. And at that stage of you know being 44 as well, though I, I still am an anxious person, I don't think anything ever felt quite as scary again mm. after that. Um, but I guess the words of wisdom is be an advocate for yourself, be pleasantly persistent. And I, I don't think by being an advocate means, you know, trampling over other people, demanding your rights. I mean, we're all in this, Courtney, right now, all in this together. But, you know, other people are waiting for treatment too. So I'm not, no more important than you and vice versa. But do speak up. And it is amazing. Do ask to be put on waiting lists if you can, because there are actually cancellations. And if you haven't heard and you're anxious, phone, because often, sometimes there's, you know, don't say, oh, they'll get to me, I don't want to bother them. You could bother people. And if, if you're bothered, they'll let you know. Um, so again, pleasant persistence when you need information. And for me, because not knowing caused such fear and worry, it's what I needed to get through mm -hmm. the next step. And be creative. I did find that the, my cancer experience really reminded me how much creativity was part of me. I think it's probably part of a lot of humans <laughs> and I've been so work focused that I hadn't really allowed myself to play and be creative so that was the gift of that summer wonderful great words Thank thanks you. for joining us for the keep your pecker up podcast and look forward to hearing your comments thanks everyone bye